and welcome back to the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. I'm Sarah Willis, French horn player and also podcaster with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians. My guest today is known as the father of minimalist music. He was described by The New Yorker as the most original music thinker of our time. And he famously said, I never expected to write a string quartet. Well, he ended up by writing three string quartets between 1988 and 2010. And these quartets have just been re-recorded and appear for the first time on one album. Steve Reich is a living legend for all of us in the music world, and I'm incredibly honoured to be speaking to him today on the Deutsche Grammophon International Podcast Series. Steve, welcome. I'm so happy that you could join us today through the wonders of modern technology. Where are you talking to us from? Uh, from Palm Desert, California. Well, I bet there's a huge difference in the weather. It's about minus five degrees outside today. Well, it's about 65 degrees Fahrenheit here and loads of sunshine. We're about, uh, we're about two hours outside of Los Angeles. Well, you know about European winters. They're grey, grey and grey. But I, I'll get off the weather. British people always want to talk about the weather. But <laughs> <laughs> we're here to talk about string quartets. Now, Steve, you actually said that you never expected to write a string quartet. And having never expected to write a string quartet, this album is proving to the world again that actually you're quite good at it. Not only that, you do some really innovative things that still seem fresh today. Now, how come you never expected to write a string quartet and what changed your mind? Well, I think it was the basic makeup of the quartet. You were too violent. I'm, uh, I'll go way back. Uh, my roots of the style that I've grown into are based on the, basically on the idea of unison canon, uh, like row, row, row your boat. Only you have to get the same timbres, i.e., in a piece, early piece of mind piano phase, you have two pianos playing the same pattern and one gradually moves a 16th note ahead of the other and they interlock and they produce an overall pattern. Now, if you had a piano and a harpsichord, you they wouldn't interlock and form one web. There would be two independent voices and there'd be confusion. If you had two harpsichord, fine. Okay, now in the string quartet, two violins can interlock, no problem there, but there's only one viola, there's only one cello. Now, violas can sort of sound like a violin, but they're, <laughs> they are different. And cello certainly is wildly different. So that was one reason. And the other was that nothing occurred to me to do that. Why did I, why did I get involved? I got involved because uh, I was asked by the Kronos Quartet back in, I guess, about 1987 or so to, to write them a piece. And at the time, Simultaneously with that, I just discovered and heard, I rather heard about rather than discovered the sampling keyboard. Sampling keyboard for people who don't know is a, basically a digital recorder with a keyboard attached. And sometimes it's just a digital recorder, which can be triggered by a keyboard or what have you, so that you can use it as an instrument. So, uh, that seemed very interesting to me because I was never interested in electronic music, instruments like synthesizers that create electronically generated sound, but rather in the use of real sounds recorded and then played back, so to speak. Uh, as in these early tape pieces of mine, It's Gonna Rain and Come Out, where the human voice is the source, not an electronic source. As a matter of fact, in the old days, they were called tape music because it was on tape recording. All right, all long, long story. So the Kronos Quartet wants a quartet. The sampling keyboard has just come to my attention. Actually, the, the artist, Beryl Quart, my wife, suggests you, why don't you use the 
the sampling keyboard for Kronos. They'll love it, and you're all anxious to, to use it. I said, great idea. Only problem was, what's... <laughs> What's in a sample? What are we talking about? So uh, the first thing that popped into my mind was the voice of Bella Bartok. After all, he was recorded both in the West Coast and the West Coast speaking in English shortly before he died in the 1950s. I was able to actually get a hold of one of the recordings. And then I began to think, now, wait a minute. Am I going to try to write a string quartet with Bella Bartok sitting on my shoulder? Maybe I should have Beethoven on the other one. I mean, it's hard, <laughs> it's hard enough as it is. Give me a break. So so I thought, no, I just that, that's too big a super ego for me to contend with. And then I thought, oh, I'll use the voice of Ludwig Wittgenstein, the philosopher that I studied when I was at Cornell University. But Ludwig Wittgenstein was a kind of recluse. He died died in 51, and there were no such recordings. So for a while, my mind was blank. I knew nothing. Now, don't ask me. God knows. It popped into my mind these train trips that I took as a child between my divorced parents, my singer-songwriter mother in Los Angeles, and my attorney father in, Los in New York. And I did this between the ages of one and six, uh, accompanied by my nurse, governess, nanny, whatever you want to call her, Virginia, Twice a year, six months in New York, took the train four days, and then six months in L.A., and so on and so forth for for a five-year period. So that makes a real impression on you, a real strong memory. And that made me think, well, I'll use the voice of Virginia and combine her with string quartet. But the idea of having just the one quartet seemed to be insufficient. Also, I really wanted to get more involved musically, and I, uh, I, I need more instruments to do that. What Bartok could do with four instruments, I maybe need eight or 12. <laughs> so I decided I would use multiple. Of I began to think of the string quartet as a single instrument. So instead of having one, as I would have had, let's say, one piano in piano phase, I had to have two. Well, what if I had three? Then I've got six violins, three violas and three cellos. Now I've got a, a real uh, interesting ensemble to set up all kinds of interlocking contrapuntal relationships. And the melodic material that will become contrapuntal comes from the speaking voices of Virginia and a black Pullman porter, Lawrence Davis, who I made contact with and recorded in the first movement of the piece, and then uh, in the second movement of the piece, three Holocaust survivors, uh, whose voices I found at the Yale University. And in the last movement, all these voices combined. So uh, that's uh, the long uh, the long and, and short of it. We like the long versions of these on the podcast. So <laughs> thank you for that. Did you never consider just using 12 string players to, to play all these all these different tracks? Like on triple quartet, when we get to that, you know, you could have used a string ensemble, but no, you wanted to, the same players to record. It was for Cronus Quartet, but I mean, they could have had Cronus Quartet and Friends. Uh, well, actually, in triple quartet, it is sometimes played by 12 musicians. And I prefer that. I think it's great. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, but that's not how it was recorded, right? No, well, it was, again, it was a piece commissioned by Kronos, and uh, Kronos is, records for the same label I do, and Kronos will do a very dedicated job. And one quartet playing against itself has a different quality than 12 people playing live. But I am completely open. I remember what a wonderful performance with a bunch of Juilliard students 
uh, playing triple quartet with 12 people live. And I know it's been done elsewhere. But let me go to why I absolutely could not do it. And it cannot be done with different trains than WTC 911. Well, particularly different trains. The first movement is basically about myself, my, my childhood. And so it's a sense it's autobiographical. But the second movement is dealing with Holocaust survivors. If someone said to me, Steve, would you write a piece about the Holocaust? I'd say, are you crazy? How, how can I possibly do that? I, 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 was in, I was in America. I was safe. I was reading about it in newspapers and seeing it in newsreels. I, I can't do that. Why didn't I do it here? Because when I was taking these trips with Virginia across America, back and forth. The years were 1937, 38, 39, 40, 41. Now, we all know what was going on at that time is that Hitler was collecting Jewish kids of my age and adults and sending them off to first to Munich and then later to Poland and Eastern Europe and up the chimney they went. Now, there were, amazingly enough, recordings made of Holocaust survivors in an archive. Uh, there are a few, but one of them that I had access to was at Yale University in Connecticut. I went up there and I listened to the voices and heard amazing things. And I chose those voices, which were most melodic. Some people speak in a very boring monotone. Other people are very animated voices. The pitch changes. And very often certain sentences are very melodic. And uh, I chose those. So what became possible was, well, it's, I can't talk about the Holocaust, but these people most certainly can. They cannot talk about it. They can bear witness. They were there. They've survived. They can recollect on their own lives. And I think that what gives the piece its um, validity is just that, that it's not some concoction of mine. It's bearing witness. Uh, and I'm the scribe. Now, it went even further. As I said, I went for people who spoke in a melodic tone of voice, and I would take these recordings and play them over a number of times so that I could transcribe them into musical notation because they were very melodic. Now, again, if you were to measure them with an oscilloscope, some of the pitches certainly were slightly off, but they were close. And when the ear, our Western ear, hears them, spoken by other Western speakers, we hear them very close to our own tempered scale. Now, what doesn't uh, fit in musically is the tempo at which people speak. I mean, people don't say, I'll answer your question, you want it at 120 or 132 <laughs> <laughs> on the metronome. They speak. And now, at the time I did different trains, which was in the late 80s, there was uh, uh, technology to make it possible to shift the speed of something without changing its pitch. But that seemed like a moral. And to take someone who has gone through the Holocaust and to meddle with their voice seemed yes, to, to me... Yes, to change the speed at what he, what he speaks, that's actually... Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to change who they are, their organic speech. No, I can't do that. I can't do that. So what I ended up with was a series of people speaking who spoke at at rhythmically, un, it wasn't like somebody spoke a quarter, another person spoke at, at, at you know, dotted quarter or triplet. It was that people would speak uh, at their own tempos, which were not related. So therefore, uh, I had to uh, simply say, well, I'm going to have to change from one unrelated tempo to another unrelated tempo. And there is no way that human musicians can go on the dot exactly from one tempo to another, which is unrelated. 
So how am I going to deal with that? Well, on pre-recording, I have three string quartets. One quartet is going to be live and is going to be played in performance and is going to basically double the speaking voices. Now, uh, when you go from the end of one section to the next, the first few bars of music, the first few words of the new speaker at a new tempo are doubled in the recording process. We could, you know, we could give a, a, a count off. We would, we would determine what the tempo of the next speaker was. And on a multi-track tape, put a, a, a metronomic count off in a new unrelated tempo so that when the players were recording speaker two, after being in speaker one who spoke at a different tempo, they could hear four bars of the new tempo in their headphones and then they could come in and join the speaker in the tempo that this new speaker had spoken in. Steve, this you're talking to a horn player here. This is terribly complicated. <laughs> I don't know how... I mean, it was. Really? It was. It, it, it I mean, took more time to do the prepared tape than it did to do the recording. <laughs> I bet, but also getting for classically trained musicians to actually be able to play along with it because basically the viola, and putting in, in layman's terms, the viola and the cello are playing more or less the tune of the speech melody. Right. Have I... Have I Absolutely right. Right. Yes, correctly. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that is no mean feat because sometimes you've changed. You don't just say from Chicago to New York. You, you cut it up and you put bits in and out. And then, you know, if, if someone was listening to that and didn't know, like today, and didn't know about this pre-prepared speech melody samples, they would think you've hired some sort of actor voiceover people to really, you know, to come in and speak it at the same pitch. But that's not the case. And that's why this is so fascinating, I think, even today with the, the technology that we have today, you know, sort of probably you can, there's an app for something like this these days, which is so unfair. But what you did was really incredibly innovative. And how did the Kronos Quartet then react? I mean, how could they play with that? Well, actually, it's easy as pie. The whole point of this is to prepare a, a pre-recording, which will be perfectly musically easy for a live performer to play with. That's why we went through all this trouble in the pre-recording process, because what happens is that for the player, they hear that there's no click tracks at all. They hear, they start off with the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the first speaker. And then they, when the next speaker comes in, they're tacit. They don't play. They listen to the pre-recorded quartet, which doubles the new voice. And they say, uh-huh. And then two, three, four bars later, they come in live. And you see So you this. made it, you made it easy for them, but you had all the work. Well, I didn't, but the, 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 record, <laughs> the recording engineer, the editor, and the quartet, while they were doing the pre-recording, it was, it was wow. arduous, yes. Wow. So, but the technique in those days, I mean, you were, you were really the first to do all this. I mean, it was, it was incredible what came out. And then the video footage that came with it. Well, people have made, you know, what have you to accompany that, but that's, that's interesting. That's not yours. That's not mine. It's not something I've sought out. And it's just something I've tried to avoid because I want people to close their eyes and just listen to what's going on. But that's very good to know because, of course, in today's research, what do we do? We go onto Google, we go onto YouTube. And I was, I was listening to the Kronos Quartet, having recorded this, but watching video footage along with it. So I just guess I just assumed it was, it was yours. So it's good, it's good to put the record straight. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you. But then from now, the big thing about this new album is called Steve Reich, the String Quartets, is that you have a new string quartet. You personally gave the okay for the Mivos Quartet to re-record all three of your string quartets and put them on one, one album. And 
I was wondering when I was listening to it, I've heard the Kronos Quartet's recording and heard this recording. I was wondering what the difference is. is, is are they using the exact same samples that you did back in 1988? Are they using that or have you, have you tweaked them a bit? Because some of the tempos and things seem a little bit different. Uh, no, they're not. The piece is out in the world. It's been done by a number of quartets. It's being done by, uh, I'd have to go <laughs> another part of my computer to see. But it's done with some regularity, believe it or not, because they can go to Boozy and Hawks, the publisher, and get the music and get the pre-recorded tape that's already been done, completely done. They just it, well, It's no longer a tape. It's now longer, a, you know, a, it's a sound file. And it's the, okay. The, I remember tapes. I remember tapes. Yeah, no, I know. I, but I mean, <laughs> if you, if you, if you, if members of the Building Philharmonic first chair strings wanted to do it as a string quartet, they'd go to Boozy and Hawks, they'd get the, the, the printed music, they'd get the uh, sound file, they'd sit back and they'd rehearse and they wouldn't have to think about anything because it's just, it's, you, you, you start off, you play, and then the tempo changes, and you're you're tacit and listening, and then you join in and, and finish, you know. And it's done fairly frequently by lots of different quartets. And it's been recorded by, let's see, um, well, Smith Quartet in, in England has recorded it, and I think there's a couple of others, but I... I uh, there's a British group that recorded it as well. It's it's done fairly frequently. So Mivos is the first one to put all three together and record it, which I thought was a great idea. You know, I mean, why not? <laughs> uh, they, they've been described as one of America's most daring and ferocious new music ensembles. Can you confirm that? Well, you know, I'm a composer, but I'm not a music critic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a very good line. <laughs> I, I will I will leave the adjectives to others, but I will say it's a pleasure to work with them. They are first-rate musicians. They know what they're doing. They were very up for, 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 for this whole project. Uh, and they invited me to rehearsals, which was really the, the most important thing, so that I could say a little bit more of this, a little bit more, you know, coach rehearsals, which I did in actually in Los Angeles, uh, I guess a couple of years back when I we, we can tend to come out here to visit our son in January, February, and March. So that's uh, a very good time of the year to go there. Yes, we're escaping <laughs> escaping the the, the, the quasi London weather that we find in New York City for the weather, but we find in Los Angeles. And uh, during the the coaching process, I got to know them even better and. and you know, we felt, felt this is great. You know, they're, they're they're they've got a big project. They're very they're very they're very thorough, and they have a very good feeling. They 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 understand what it's all about musically and emotionally, and I, I and it came out very 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 well. I think their style, their youth, their enthusiasm is is different than the the enthusiasm and the intensity of Kronos. And you know, sometimes you 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 feel something. It's as if you're playing the same tempo, but somebody's sitting right on top of it and somebody's leaning forward, so to speak. You know what I mean? And well, that's the best thing about music is that it's never twice the same, although exactly, in minimal music. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. You cannot. You could try like a, you could, you know, you could try to do it and you couldn't do it. No one can do it, no matter how great they are. And thank God they can't. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, in the parts, I saw, I, I don't know where I saw it. I, I saw a, a copy of some of the parts um, somewhere in the, in the research. And, and you see the viola and the cello lines that have been written to, 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 to do the speaking, to play along, to double the, the speaking. Yes. Um, and, 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 but did, is that in the quartet that's playing live? Because exactly. that's quite hard to the, catch. The, the, the live quartet doubles all the voices. They do it. And they find it. That's a very interesting musical question. When we were, we were recording that, 
there were long discussions between Hank Dutt, who is the violist, still is the violist with Kronos, and Jean Jean Renault, who is retired from Kronos, but was the original cellist. And basically, the women's voices are doubled with viola, and the men's voices are doubled with cello. The question was very simple. Do we follow the notation? Do we follow the recording? And I said, well, the recording, the notation will give you the basic area, the basic thing, and then you... It, try to refine that if you can and you have the inclination to try to get even more exactly with the voice because it's impossible to do ex an exact musical notation of, of these things. So uh, a lot of time, and I would say the most, uh, t after all the technical stuff that we talked about earlier, the actual musical preparation for the uh, recording was spent on bowing, you know, the exact up and down bowing between the viola and the cello to catch the nuance of the speaking voice and the actual phrasing of it, the rhythmic spacing of it. They did a marvelous job and they spent a lot of time working it out. Their bowings are in the score uh, sometimes or in the parts. Other quartets, and I talked to Mivos about this, say, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's a one way, but we're going to, as you know, string players are very, very particular about their own personal bowing and more power to them. They, they should because the way they bow will give you the result that they can deliver. And if you, they have to do somebody else's, it, you know, it may not be as good. So uh, that was another part of the process with Mevos and with Kronos. Well, I'm impressed they invited you to rehearsals because in my orchestra, sometimes we say it's better not to have the composers at rehearsals. <laughs> well, well if, you play, if you play enough dead composers, there's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. But you know something, Steve? I've been playing the horn for a very long time and I've never played any Steve Reich on the horn. Isn't well, that terrible? That's no, actually not okay. No, I, I, that, that's not an instrument. I, I think I have, there probably are some parts in the desert music and maybe in another orchestra piece or two. But you know, I'm really uh, an ensemble composer. I have written for orchestra and the desert music is really a very good piece. Music for ensemble and orchestra is a good piece, but there's no horn part. And brass is not my forte by a long shot. So basically I've written very little for, for French horn or for brass. There are some trumpet parts. I'm more at ease with the upper register because of the agility. Nothing personal, but no, but, no. But you're, you're not, not you're not taken. missing anything. <laughs> it, it would be nice to play in desert music. You have a chance. I'd recommend. It that. would be. It would be. But also, I I mean, listening to these these three quartets, I also thought it's really a string game. Uh, a lot of a lot of this minimalist music. I mean, we literally physically can't do that. We can't play patterns over and over again. And I I mean, I've seen I've I saw you a wonderful recording on Somo Moderna done, and there's Roland on the clarinet. Clarinets can do that. They can go on and on and on for a long time, but brass players simply can't. So um, I guess that that hasn't Believe been. Believe it or not, I'm aware of that as well. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that, but it, it, yeah, it, the agility agility is a very important part of everything I've ever done. Uh, instrumental agility, and so that lends itself to uh, strings, woodwinds, and of course percussion, because I'm a percussionist. So, so that that's the that's the strength and the limitations of my orchestration. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been fascinating for me to research that because, uh, you know, I've always been aware of your music. But as a horn player, you know, we tend to stick with our Heldenlebens and our, our right. Wagners. And, our, right. you know, and so it's, it's been really for me finding out a lot of, of new things about your music. And I wondered, you know, I was reading about what you said about the 12-tone music and the fact that that really wasn't your thing. But Berio, your teacher, you know, was if you, if you wrote a melody in those days, I mean, I've read that often. 
often about that period. If you wrote a melody, you were like shunned for forever. And Berio was at least tolerant of that. But what would have happened if you'd been in Stockhausen's class? Well, we probably would have gotten into a fighting match. (laughs) (laughs) He came to a concert that we did in Cologne of drumming and I sort of, you know, did not communicate afterwards, whereas I I had very good relationship with Georgie Ligeti. So, I mean, you know, uh, that, that, that whole generation, basically, the Barrio and Ligeti were my uh, closest associates of that generation. I met Boulez. Ligeti but, was wonderful. Yes. Ligeti was such a wonderful man, really. Yes. So I, full I, of fun. I actually, he came to a performance of drumming in Berlin uh, back in the 70s. And when it was over, I went out and uh, people in the lobby, and he was there. And I made a joke. You know, I said, well, boy, you must have gone to the bank after 2001. And he looked at me and said, don't you know the story? <laughs> <laughs> told me this how he was basically ripped off by whoever the, the production company was who were waiting to for the lawsuit and just squashed it uh, and he got very little for that uh, 2001 Oh uh, no that's uh, terrible Yes it is well you know welcome welcome to Hollywood <laughs> Oh goodness poor thing <laughs> Oh my goodness! How is it today, Steve? When you see all this modern technique, all these all these new technical appliances and this and that, and like DJs doing techno, which I guess uh, you know, I don't know. It would is techno music like the minimalism of the modern world? I mean, they just have to press a button. Do you sometimes feel wistful at all this modern technology, or is it something you think that modern composers should really embrace? I think everybody should do what suits them. Uh, and I uh, am becoming less and less and less. I haven't used any electronics beyond, uh, you know, microphones for amplification in, in, in some cases. Uh, and that's it. So as I got older, maybe it's just age uh, or whatnot. But I mean, uh, whatever technical, uh, you know, realities I had dealt with when I was younger, which were basically, I mean, tape recorders are not exactly high tech. And electric organs is similar. Yes, but it was because no one was doing that in those days. It was. It was high tech. It well, is yeah, now, maybe. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, the nice thing, you see, now, these t- earliest tape pieces, the earliest pieces of mine that are still around are It's Going to Rain from 1965 and come up in 1966. And they are uh, tape, tape pieces. Now, why do they survive? They survive because they have the human voice saying, it's going to rain, and then another second movement about the, the destructive flood of Noah. It's basically a biblical text, but almost everybody knows. Uh, And come out is a civil rights piece. So I think people relate to these things because the melodic material of the voice is clear and the the repetition and the interlocking of the two of the, of the unison canon which is always in different rhythmic positions is immediately appealing and, and is also a kind of commentary on the words that have been spoken clearly so it has a lot of human content in a way that a lot of electronic music has just vanished because it doesn't. So I think that that is why those pieces have survived. Yes, here, here is all I can say to that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what do you? How do you spend your days now? Are you? Are, do you plan on composing more? Do you go to concerts? Do you listen to music? All of the above, but mostly I sit at home as, as I always have writing music. Right now I'm working on a piece called Jacob's Ladder. You've heard of that one, no doubt. I certainly have, yes. I hope the horn parts are going to be incredible. No horns. (laughs) Oh, no. No, it's for for ensemble. Uh, It's for, let's see, uh, two flutes, two uh, oboes, two clarinets, one piano, two vibes, and double string quartet. 
two sopranos and two tenors. But it's actually unusual in that the piece is mostly instrumental with the vocals only from time to time. It's hard to talk about a piece you're working on, but I will say this. When I was wrestling with the musical equivalent of ladder, the most obvious musical equivalent of a ladder is a scale, right? It goes up, it goes down. But if you really get involved in that, you can, you know, I don't want to rewrite Cherney or, or Hannon. So, so I, I dropped that pretty quick and began to realize that people climbing a ladder can also be going up one step and going down two or going up two and coming down one, i.e. that any melodic movement can be seen as movement on a ladder. It can also be seen as a movement of human progress or failure. And enough said. I have to, I'm, I'm 11 minutes in, so... Leave me in peace. <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear. And if you were to listen to music at home, I mean, everyone oh, always asks I listen me. To like, well, I people ask me that, and I don't actually. If, if I listen to music, it has to be something completely different than classical, because you know what it's like going to a rehearsal. You come home, and your head is so bursting of like with me. It's Bruckner today. What do we we played Bartok last week? I had the miraculous Mandarin crashing through my brain oh, boy, in the middle tough. of that's the a, night. That's a heavy duty piece. Yeah. yeah, 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 and 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 I. And so I go home and I listen to Cuban music to relax me. So what, <laughs> Did you say tuba? No, no. I would, I would never listen to tuba music to relax me. No, Cuban music. Oh, Cuban, <laughs> Cuban. Well, Not tuba Cuba, music. Cuba plays the tuba. <laughs> no. Oh, that, that, that could be my next album. There you go. Uh, <laughs> now I want 50%. <laughs> no, no, no. You'll end up like Ligeti. <laughs> forewarned is forewarned. <laughs> no, so what's your go-to music? Is it Bach? Uh, well, Bach and Stravinsky, actually, and uh, sometimes Bartok, and sometimes Periton, and sometimes John Coltrane. Oh, John, yes, of course. And, and sometimes Miles Davis, and sometimes Ravel, and sometimes Debussy. And, okay, and, I, I and, can tell this is going to go on for about half an hour. Cause <laughs> I'm getting boring. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not, not in the slightest, but I know, I know these questions and I'm always annoyed when someone else asks me. So I apologize for asking you, but I promise <laughs> that I would. Everyone wants to know about you, Steve, because you're, you know, you're, you're one of the, the, the world's most fascinating living legends. And uh, it's just a great honor to talk to you today. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate speaking with you. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been a real pleasure. And thank you for bringing, yeah, for letting the Mivos Quartet bring your, your three wonderful string quartets all together on this album for Deutsche Grammophon. And uh, I'm looking forward to Jacob's Ladder. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> How sure long? With you, you said you're 11 minutes in. How many to go? God knows. <laughs> I, I suspect uh, under 20. Okay, well, there we go. Well, we'll see when it comes up. And my very last question today has nothing to do with music. Okay. Are you wearing a baseball cap? Uh, at the moment, uh, I am not, but I, I will okay. be shortly. I'm, I'm, not fully, I, because I'm not fully dressed, That's which is why you, I don't I have the video on. Say, <laughs> I was going to say, for my podcast listeners, Steve and I are not, we, we, are, we are just doing this via audio. Right. And I'd actually, I'd actually brought a baseball cap with me to impress you with, because I've right. never seen a picture of you without one. Well, never. Uh, Right. Well, actually, it's a, it's a religious commitment where Jewish men have been covering their heads for thousands of years. And it's, it's more in that line. And being an American, uh, a baseball cap is a perfect solution. Well, thank you. That will go down in history as i probably the first person ever to, to be cheeky enough to ask Steve Reich about his baseball caps. So thank you for tolerating that. I, I, I have enjoyed every moment of our, of our conversation. <laughs> 
thank you so much, Steve. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, good luck with everything. And I hope one day to discover an amazingly juicy horn part in one of your pieces. I will put it in the, uh, the, the file for closest attention. <laughs> thank you. All the best, Steve. Take All care and hope to our paths will cross in person one day. I do hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this podcast with Steve and would like to hear past episodes or be informed about future episodes of this series, please subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts from. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Willis, and I'll see you next time.